the dilemma of jumping into um, a passage of Scripture in the middle of a book. We did this, I preached through Romans 8, and kind of faced the same dilemma, is, um, is a contextual one, um, not necessarily understanding where we are or where it's coming from. Um, and it's a unique dilemma for, uh, for the Gospel of John in particular. Uh, my oldest son has really gotten, um, gotten into, not just gotten into, he's obsessed with uh, the Harry Potter series. I know, uh, I know there are uh, parenting opinions on how to approach Harry Potter, and that's okay. Abby and I are cool with it because we're trying to train our children the art of magic and sorcery, and um, <laughs> it's going well. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, no, it's, it's, look, we, we, um, we think, we think, uh, I agree with Tolkien and Lewis that uh, fairy tales and myths are a great way to uh, cultivate our children's imagination and, pre- and prepare them for uh, the one true myth, is what Lewis calls the gospel, that every story whispers his name. And, um, and, and so we've been excited to see his little mind coming, coming alive with excitement over, over Hogwarts and all this stuff. But I've never read the Harry Potter series, so he is trying to um, relate to me and his excitement and share all of these stories and everything that's going on in the world of Harry Potter, and I don't have a clue what he's talking about. Um, and it's, it's hard for me to understand um, not just what's going on in the story and try to piece that all together, uh, but, but really the story itself, itself, the style of the story, I would say. J.K. Rowling is obviously a brilliant um, and unique storyteller, but if you haven't read her works, if you haven't read her stories before, then it's tough to appreciate um, and understand when somebody who's just immersed in that world um, tries to explain it to you. I feel like that's my challenge this morning um, in this series, because we're just jumping right into John 13 through 17, and it's not just that we don't have the context of the story, we kind of do have that, and what I mean by that is, is, that, um, is that we understand the story of Jesus, we've read the Gospels enough, we know enough about Jesus to understand a little bit of the story, um, but, but what we don't have in the, is the background of the unique style that is John as a gospel writer. Um, and that's particularly significant when it comes to John as, um, as a writer. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, um, or, or you, you're familiar, you've heard this language before but never really understood what it meant, means, there are four gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four uh, books of the New Testament are what we call Gospels. And the Gospels are the stories of Jesus, the historical narratives of Jesus. Well, the first three are called synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic literally means seeing things together. And so they're called synoptics because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. Uh, They have their own little unique nuances and styles. Marx is very quick paced. Luke is very detailed. There's things like that. But by and large, they're telling the same stories with the same timeline and so forth. But then you have John. Um, John's gospel comes at the narrative of Jesus completely differently. Whereas the synoptics are more descriptive, like you would expect a historical narrative to be, John is more reflective. Whereas the synoptics are more of a, um, of a true um, historical narrative, uh, John is more of a theological contemplation. You can even see that in the first chapter, where he goes in this theology of the logos, the word becoming flesh. 
The synoptics are interested in retelling the story. John is interested in the beauty of the story. The synoptics are informative. John is more intimate. The synoptics would be um, the establishing of orthodoxy. John is more doxology. And this all makes sense because the Apostle John was known as the beloved disciple of Jesus. It was kind of his unique role in the leadership. There seems to be this particular level of intimacy that he experienced with the Savior more so than any other disciple. And that comes out in the way he tells the story of his Savior. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of Jesus, but John tells the story behind the story of Jesus. And nowhere is this unique beauty and um, really glory on display more than in the upper room discourse. John 13 through 17 takes place in the upper room. That's, that's where we get that title. When you look at the overall outline of the book of John, it can be argued that the entire gospel is written to set you up for this intimate moment between Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. As if the whole story is leading up to these chapters, and then the rest of it is kind of in response to these chapters. And so what we're going to do this year is we're going to enter into that room with those disciples and dwell there with our Savior in its full intimacy that we only get from John. Today I want to set the scene for us. In fact, verse 1 is intended to do just that. There are three clauses there in verse 1, and each of them is going to set the stage in a different way. So um, here's what we're going to do. Set the stage in three ways, biblically, contextually, and thematically. Where is this in the biblical story? Where is this in just the story of John, the context of John? And what is the theme going to be? Biblically. The scene is set up biblically by that first clause of verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover... So this whole sermon series is going to take place within the context of a meal, but not just any meal, the Passover meal, which is very significant, biblically speaking. Now, I don't want to take anything for granted here. I don't want to presume upon um, everybody understanding what the Passover is, so let me just take one minute um, and explain. Early in Israel's history, you probably do know this part, early in Israel's history, they, they were enslaved uh, to the great Egyptian empire of the day. Um, God called Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, famously, and Pharaoh famously refused to let them go. So God sends a series of plagues upon Egypt, and the final and most severe one finally breaks the will of Pharaoh, and he agrees to free Israel. It is within that final plague that the Passover of Israel, this meal, is instituted. We heard it read in our Old Testament reading this morning. Fathers were told to take a, a spotless lamb and slaughter the lamb for a meal, but also to take the blood and put it on the doorframe of the house with this assurance from God that when his spirit of judgment comes through Egypt, if he sees the blood of the lamb on the door, he would pass over that house and judgment of God would be spared. It would not visit that house. But the command to do that also included this, these words. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And so the idea was this, 
The Passover became a lasting ordinance, a a, a lasting ceremony of Israel so that every generation would, in, in a sense, relive the Exodus. Annually, they would relive the Exodus and the salvation of God. The meal itself developed into a highly liturgical ceremony where the lamb and the bread and the wine each were rich with symbolism that the Father would explain and so forth. So John 13 through 17 takes place during that meal while Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal. However, he does something during the meal that would change the course of redemptive history forever. He leads his disciples through the liturgy. So he's doing the symbolism stuff with the bread and the wine and all this, but he changes it. He holds up the bread and the father used to say, this is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in Egypt. He holds up the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. He pours the wine. He says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This wine represents my blood. Jesus views himself as the lamb who was slaughtered to provide the the, the bread, the wine, the meat that we would feast upon him. And then in this way, he would save God's people from their ultimate slavery. And so it's in this moment that Jesus institutes what we call the new covenant, okay? He says it explicitly during the meal. This is a new covenant That is, all of the covenants of the Old Testament have converged together to find their fulfillment in me in this moment. But here's the thing. You get, everything I just said right there, you get all of that theological significance in the Synoptic Gospels. That's why they're written, to show you um, the institution of communion, the institution of the new covenant. But in John, you get something else, something unique. The theology is certainly there. You can pick up what's going on, especially if you know what's going on. But in true Apostle John fashion, what is in the forefront are the details and conversations of the meal. We don't just get the important facts about the Passover. We see him wash his disciples' feet before the meal. We hear his intimate conversations with them at the table. We even get to listen to him pray the dinner table prayer for his disciples. So setting the stage biblically, everything during this sermon series will take place during the institution of the new covenant, but you may not even notice. Because John is going to invite us into the intimate details of the meal, and in this way, It is not the doctrine of the new covenant, but more so the heart of the new covenant that will be before us this year. So that's setting the stage biblically. Setting the stage contextually. We've seen how John 13 through 17 fits within the biblical story. Where does it fit in John's story? That next clause. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father. So contextually speaking, Jesus is within 24 hours of his death. It's time. The hour has come. The cross is looming. The shadow is growing. 
He institutes the promise of the new covenant, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, but those are empty promises unless his body is actually broken and his blood is actually shed. And Jesus is hours away from making good on his promises in the most horrific way. He will die as a scapegoat between man and God beneath the wrath that belongs to you and me. Now, of course his death is central to the Gospels. But in John, again, in John, we don't just get the historical details of his death. We get his departing words. If you knew that this time tomorrow you would be dead, what would you do tonight? Would you not just gather your loved ones around you and tell them words that you want them to never forget? Look them in the eye. Listen to me. Out of everything I can say to you, this is what is most important to me. This is what I want you to hear and to remember and never forget. Here are my, my parting words. Think about that moment. Think about the weight, the significance, the, the, the seriousness, the intimacy, the love of that moment. That's John 13 through 17. His parting words to his loved ones. It says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, so Jesus knows he's about to die, meaning what is about to come out of his mouth is his farewell address, and we get let in on it because of John. It's amazing. Out of everything Jesus could say, John 13 through 17 is most important to him. So contextually speaking, the reason I'm saying this is that there should be a unique gravity to this whole sermon series. When you consider the context, when you consider the looming cross, it's weighty, it's solemn, it's fervent. It is the last words of a dying Savior. And Jesus says a lot throughout the Gospels, of course, and every word bears eternal weight. But what he will say to us this year are the words he chose as his final words. Let's approach them with the seriousness and reverence that they deserve. So what is it that he will say to us? A lot. But the final clause of verse 1 sums it all up. Sets the stage thematically. We've seen it biblically, contextually. Finally, let's set the stage for the theme of John 13 through 17. Here's what he says. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, technically speaking, the translation, he loved them to the end, is a good one. That's, that's a direct translation of the Greek. But, but the wording is awkward and, t- and, and difficult to understand the meaning. The meaning behind the Greek word is not just like to the end chronologically, but means ultimate or fullest. I, I agree with commentators who choose to translate this verse as, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the uppermost. And that is going to be the central theme of John 13 through 17. The fullest and uppermost love of Jesus. Listen, it's impossible to study the life of Jesus without knowing that he loves. We don't doubt that Jesus loves But what I think we doubt is the extent of his love. It's not that we question whether Jesus loves us. 
I think deep down we wonder and perhaps fear, how much does he love us? It's not that we question whether Jesus is gracious and merciful. We know he is. I think in our worst moments we wonder, how much grace and mercy does he really have? Will I exhaust it? Is it enough for a sinner like me? We don't struggle with the doctrine of Christ's love. We struggle with the extent of Christ's love. Well, ultimately, those doubts are answered, of course, at Calvary. The cross says to us, his love is ultimate and it is endless. Even for a sinner like me. But you know, it's one thing to read the story about Jesus dying. It's another thing to hear Jesus talk about the meaning of his death. And that's what John 13 through 17 affords us. Verse 1 here is telling us that what he is about to say is a preview of Christ's ultimate love on the cross. Everything he says and does in John 13 through 17 is his own commentary. His, his own explanation and application of his own death. John 13 through 17 embodies the way Jesus views Calvary love. So, in this way, the ultimate love of the cross is going to come alive for us this year, at least it should. Out of every theme that Jesus could have chosen, the theme he chooses is love. Which means love, apparently, is what this story is all about. And if love is what Jesus' story is all about, that means love is what everything is about. When my son was beginning the final book of Harry Potter, he was excited. I told him, I've never read the book, but I bet Harry is going to die in the end. And Holt said, oh, Harry's not going to die. That'd be a terrible ending. That, uh, Volda, whatever, is going to die. Voldemort is going to die or whatever. I said, and so I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure the Volder guy is going to die. I'm sure he's going to die. But I bet Harry's going to have to die in order to defeat him. Well, he finishes the book. And uh, by the way, look, look I, I'm about to ruin the whole series. If you haven't read it um, or seen the movies, it's your fault. It's been out forever. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm sorry. Uh, you plug your ears if you're looking forward to reading it without me ruining it for you. But he finishes the final book. He comes to me and said, how did you know? I said, hold. Obviously, she has written a wonderful story. And every good story is a longing for the true story. Every story is an echo of our Savior. And at the heart of the story of Jesus is the triumph of self-sacrificing love. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what, therefore, that's what everything's all about. That, therefore, that's what every story ultimately is all about. And that's what we're going to see this year. The triumph of self-sacrificing love. His love is seen at the cross, but the cross is described and applied in John 13 through 17. So here's my application question to prepare us for the series. One question. Are you ready to be loved on by Jesus. Now, I chose that wording intentionally because um, 
I'm not asking you, are you ready for the love of Jesus? I'm asking you, are you ready to be loved on by Jesus? Because that wording feels a lot more like John. It's a little more uncomfortable, a little more awkward. To be loved on by Jesus. Are you ready for his intimacy? Are you ready for his tenderness? Are you ready for his service? Are you ready to be loved on by Jesus? No matter where you are or who you are, I'm telling you right now, it's going to be difficult for you. This depth, this depth of love from Jesus is going to make you uncomfortable. If you're proud, to the proud this morning, this love is going to be really tough for you. Is there anything that's strong, independent, self-sufficient, I don't need anybody's help type of people dislike more than tender, affectionate, intimate love? Have you noticed that? It feels so awkward. It feels so insulting. This is Peter, right? In just a couple of weeks, we're going to look. Jesus kneels at Peter's feet and, and he starts washing his feet like a slave and Peter's like, what are you doing? Stop. You shouldn't be doing that. And Jesus says, oh, I have to do this or you can't have me. You have to be okay with my tender, intimate, self-sacrificing love. So listen, if you're prideful, this is going to be tough because Jesus is going to attack your pride with his love. The opposite end of pride, self-pity. If that's you, self-pitying, self-loathing, always complaining, woe is me type of people, they don't like this love either because it rebukes us in our pity party. You're not the victim that you think you are. You're actually very loved. Things aren't as bad as you think they are. Quit sulking, get over yourself. Jesus loves you ultimately, and no amount of self-condemnation can change that. So you can go on and hate yourself, but Jesus loves you. To the unbelieving among us, you're probably used to religions Seeking your conversion? Are you used to a Savior wooing you with his love? What you will discover here is just that. A Savior who wants to win you over with his love. You don't need more religion in your life. You don't need to become a clean up and become a better moral person. You need to be loved. And every day of your life is testifying that this is so. Well, Jesus is here to confront your unbelief with his love. To the wayward, those, um, those who wouldn't call themselves unbelievers but are, are far from Jesus, the prodigals, maybe that would be a good way, the prodigals among us here or maybe listening to this online. Jesus is calling you home by his love. And his love is the greatest confrontation to your rebellion. If he is angry with you, if he has given up on you, if he's going to retaliate against you, if you were to come home and he would give you a good scolding rather than run and embrace you and throw a party, if he's mad and after you, this is only going to harden you more toward him. You're only going to hate him more, and it is only going to reinforce your rebellion against him. But if he is calling, oh sinner, please come home, 
I love you, that it's not too late for you, that I am waiting to receive you back and I want to wash your feet and throw a party, then your heart will be melted and you'll come home. If you want to keep on running from Jesus, don't give much thought to his love because it is bound to lead you home. And on and on we will go with the applications in the coming months. For now, the stage has been set. Biblically, this is the most significant moment in redemptive history, the institution of the new covenant. Contextually, this is Jesus' final words to his disciples hours before his death. They are weighty, they are serious. Thematically, these are words of his ultimate love. Brothers and sisters, we are on holy ground this year. I hope you're ready to be loved on by Jesus. Let me pray. Come, Savior, and meet us at this meal that you instituted in that moment as a lasting ordinance, like the Passover of old, as a lasting ordinance that we might experience your presence and taste your love. Do that, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.